This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. The energy sector was one of the key areas of focus at the COP27 Global Climate Conference in Egypt. But what does the 2022 energy security crisis mean for the companies tasked with decarbonising the global power system over the next few decades? Have a listen to Breaking Views chat with one of the sector's leading lights. Welcome to The Exchange, our weekly interview slot with the movers and shakers of global finance. I'm George Hay, EMEA editor of Breaking Views, the financial commentary arm of Reuters, and I'm coming to you from London. Politicians, investors and scientists have just returned from Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, where they gathered for COP27, the year's premier climate change conference. Just before the event, I caught up with Marco Alverda, boss of Italian gas company SNAM between 2016 and 2022. He's now chief executive of Tree Energy Solutions, or TEZ, which aims to accelerate the energy transition by building some of the world's largest hydrogen projects. And he last year published a well-received book entitled The Hydrogen Revolution. I wanted to ask Marco what war and soaring power costs mean for business people trying to decarbonise at the same time. I also wanted to find out how the bosses of big European industrial companies should be amending their strategies to deal with painfully high power prices and whether the current mess has any benefits for their counterparts running big renewable energy companies. Meanwhile, how are all these factors likely to change the geopolitical map over the coming decades. Stay tuned to find out his thoughts. Okay, well, hi Marco, thanks for joining us. Hi George. I think to to start off we'll just uh, ask a very simple question. Um, Is the world in a better or worse position on the rate of decarbonisation relative to where we were a year ago at COP26? Well, the short term is clearly bad because we have coal on the rise everywhere and it's driven by the lack of alternatives in some European countries and it's driven by prices in Asia. But I think the medium and long term outlook has much improved, Um, has improved just because of uh, people really now focusing on the cost of energy and, and how cheaper some of the alternatives are and uh, also on security of supply and and i think this both both these themes uh, apart from the horrific summers we've had from a climate point of view i think all push in the in the favor of renewables right so that so the fact that um as you say some countries like germany are kind of burning more coal in the short term like you would say um like from a kind of energy security point of view uh people are worked out or are working out that um, renewable energy is uh, is cheaper in the longer term, and that's so. Do you, do you see kind of evidence on the ground that uh, countries are engaging with renewable energy and the need to roll it out faster more than they were? 
I don't see, unfortunately, enough evidence of of on the ground activity because I think most governments are really focused on the next winter. But I see all the analysts and the industry commentators and industry players getting ready for what we expect will be a massive acceleration in the deployment of renewables. The U.S. Uh, took a, a leaped frog ahead of Europe with the Inflation Reduction Act and with the Hydrogen Department of Energy of the States has $8 billion of hydrogen hub funding that's going out. Uh, everyone's waiting for Europe's response that will come. Uh, and I think uh, we shouldn't forget that China is is constantly progressing their climate agenda. Uh, so if you ask me which country is 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 progressing the fastest it's china because they are continuing to roll out electric vehicles and 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 hydrogen buses etc right okay well um i mean you were uh, the boss of uh, chief executive of snam um the main operator of the transport and dispatching of natural gas in italy for over five years um what would you be mo- if you were still in that post what would you be most worried about um like at the moment i mean as you I mean, basically, the situation at the moment seems to be for this winter, we've got we currently have relatively warm weather and high storage. So is the is the big problem for Europe as a whole that the the, the price of gas staying high next winter as well, rather than actual kind of supply? Or would you be worried about both? What, what worries me a lot more than prices is is the availability of gas. And what's worried me, I've been in the industry 20 years, and and what worries me, regardless of of the role I'm in as a company, is the fact that storages are uh, misunderstood, how how strategic and how important gas storage is. And uh, the problems arise typically around February. When you think of gas storage, you, you should think of like air inside a football. If you puncture the football, air will get out immediately because there's pressure inside that what that's what happens in November December and, and early January as the air goes out as the storages uh, become less full the pressure in the storage is little and so it will be harder to get the pressure uh, you need out to keep the lights on so uh, what what people underestimate is that the difference between a very warm day in February in Italy but it's it's the same in the UK uh, and it's even worse in northern uh, Europe um, a, a warm day in Italy you consume about 190 million cubic meters the same day in a cold February you consume 460 two and a half times more. So a week of very cold weather, we call it the beast from the east or whatever name you attach to that very cold spell, that consumes almost as much gas as as three uh, or four normal weeks um, in, in, in a warmer summer. So if you, if you do get a very cold spell in February, there simply won't be enough gas uh, to, to keep the lights on in, in all of Europe. So you'll need to do curtailment. And, and, this and so, is just to, so that so the problem there is a that you just need a lot more if it's a lot colder for, for obvious reasons. But um, there's also you're saying there's a kind of technical problem. It's harder to get the the gas out of storage. Is, is that is that the right way to understand? Yeah, that? exactly. Yeah. You have less gas coming out of storage, and when it's cold in Europe, it's cold in Europe uh, at the same time everywhere. So yeah. you'll have all European countries competing for uh, very scarcely available gas. The big risk is that countries uh, with nationalistic mindset close the borders for gas, and yeah, and yeah. that could really be a, a very big social and political problem for Europe. Europe was founded 
as a community of collaboration around coal and steel. Uh, no one, no one, uh, no one is really thinking enough through the consequences of that curtailment and that um, border uh, conflict uh, for energy. Uh, and and so that means, and that when you talk about curtailment, you mean like um, obviously the on the con on the continent um, there are uh, everything's interconnected. So like we would in a hypothetical example, could we see uh, Germany or or anyone but Germany saying uh, you know we need this because we're in a, a real cold snap. We need much more gas than we thought. We're not going. We're just going to not. Um, allow gas to go beyond our borders for yeah you know and and it's just as simple as that and i mean that... that's exactly what happens and i think the uk is the most vulnerable because the uk has uh, uh basically let its storage shut down um and the uk is dependent yeah. on continental storage through the interconnections with the netherlands and belgium and uh, and it's exactly how you said it i don't want to mention what specific countries would do but i've been in the gas industry in 2006 when there was a shortage of gas because the Ukrainians and Gazprom were disputing, having a commercial dispute. Mm -hmm. And yeah. I've seen exactly that overnight uh, government saying you're not allowed to, you know, I have the gas in my country. I'm lucky and blessed to have storage in my country. I'm not going to let you export the gas. Right. But I mean, what's I suppose the counter argument on that is um, things would have to get really, really quite dire. And I realize you're saying, you know, it, it could be that dire, but things would have to get really, really dire for 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 countries to start doing that, because if they did, that obviously then has all sorts of knock-on effects for the future. But um, you, you, I mean, notwithstanding that, you still see that as a kind of legitimate thing to be concerned about. I think uh, we are we are uh, lucky to have storages full now and to have October that's been unusually warm. Mm. And let's keep the fingers crossed. Next winter is going to be harder because the. Uh, uh, storages are full of Russian gas. Essentially, that's what Europe does uh, normally, buys cheap Russian gas in the summer to fill up all the storages. Yeah. I'm not sure how we'll be able to fill the storages for next winter, but even this winter, if it gets cold, we may just be able to nudge the bullet, but it's going to be very tricky. And it doesn't need to get dire to the point of having blackouts. It needs to be a prediction of possible blackouts to really uh, drive countries to shut the borders and that's right. the worst worst case scenario okay but i suppose from a kind of corporate point of view um yeah if, if you if you happen to be the boss of like a really big industrial player in europe like basf um how would you be kind of what is the right way to look at the current situation from where where, where we are almost at the end of 2022 i mean would you be kind of you know the the the, the, the dynamic you're just talking about there means that uh, gas prices could stay really high all of next year, um, perhaps even longer. But at some point, you know, the price signal will, will have do its stuff and gas supply in the middle of the decade is kind of due to ramp up, um, at least in theory. So, I mean, does that mean that you, it's just a case of sticking out and kind of holding on for dear life for the next, you know, year or so? But not really changing your capex plans or would you just be would you be doing that would you just be kind of doing a freeze on investment or or what how would you think about it? so uh, there there will be more lng coming but we have to remember that china continues to grow its demand for lng china's adding about 15 million homes one five to their gas grid every year they're still cooking right. 
and heating homes with coal. So China and Asia's growth in general, as they move from coal to gas, which is exactly what we're asking them to do, will continue well beyond 2050, 2060. Uh, all, all the big European companies, they also have an um, obligation to decarbonize. In Germany, for example, you won't be allowed any more fossil fuels by 2043. Uh, so that in itself is driving a lot of the CapEx decisions. Uh, they are trying to electrify, so a lot of companies concerned is, you know, how cheap will electricity be in the context of a high high gas scenario? And I think the, the bright news for some of these players as they are thinking about decarbonizing and, um, and creating a, a, a more secure portfolio of energy supply is just how, how cheap uh, hydrogen and, and its derivatives are going to be in the next decade. So I, I think there will be a, a couple of very difficult years. Progressively, as we approach the end of this decade, uh, the availability of cheaper gas will uh, will help significantly, especially coming from Qatar. There is still a lot of uncertainty that's blocking new projects being built in America because the Europeans aren't ready to sign the long-term take-or-pay contracts because of the very uncertainties that we're talking about. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg. The Europeans are reluctant to sign 20-year um, long-term gas contracts. And the Europeans, the that's the, the U.S. investors are not able to sanction the big liquefaction projects that would really help lower the cost of energy for everyone. Okay, that, well, let's come on to that. But um, just just for the moment, I mean, you you, you mentioned hydrogen. You wrote a well-received book on hydrogen called the Hydrogen Revolution, which came out last year. Um, does the fallout, well, you know, given that we've had war, energy crises since you published that in the middle of last year? Um, would you be do if you were publishing it right now? Would you be kind of there be any way in which you would amend it, or would there be any way in which your argument might have changed? Um, thinking of things like the, the fact that the price of gas has gone through the roof, that does have implications for the uh, relative cost of things like green hydrogen, right? Yes, um, uh, I've I've done a couple of editions already, and every time oh, okay. I I update it, uh, the only thing that's really moving is is the timing. Things are getting massively accelerated. So projects that I thought were going to happen in 2030, 2035, now are happening in 2027. Right. So you know the European reaction to COVID and 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 I think the doubling down that we're going to see early next year as a consequence of Russia and Ukraine. Is is really the repower EU? Hydrogen is at the core of that. So the volumes that are becoming mandatory in Europe, in twenty, you know, kind of by twenty twenty five, by twenty thirty, these are numbers that in my original books I had out for twenty thirty five. So there's a almost a decade of acceleration. Right. Okay. And I mean, presumably, I mean, how how important is this the the cost factor there as well? Because um, the uh, you, I mean, it depends what gas price you input, but like the the cost of green hydrogen relative to blue hydrogen is presumably uh, yes. quite a lot different, right? So green hydrogen uh, 15 years ago used to cost $1,000 a megawatt hour. And, and we have a path now to see it getting below 25 this decade. Right. The cost of natural gas used to be $5 a megawatt hour. And, and now it's up, you know, has been up to 250. It's now back down in, in the high hundreds, but but that's because it's very warm and storages are full. Right. So you have, as you've mentioned, between blue and, and green, but even just hydrogen compared to fossil gas, notwithstanding the CO2 advantages, you, you've had this incredible switch. And, and hydrogen, there's going to be 
a bump due to inflation and supply chain issues with all renewables and everything else, every other commodity and product. But but as we get past this bump, the trajectory is just down and yeah. molecules are going to get more and more expensive as we run out of the cheaper uh, reservoirs of the world. So the trajectory, I mean, the, that inversion has already happened, happened and, and hydrogen is already cheaper than, than fossil gas today. Right. Yeah, no, but that, that's another in, in topic. Europe. Of, right, in another topic I was going to ask you about. Um, I mean, your your latest role is chief executive of TES, um, H2, um, which is aiming to scale up green hydrogen. Um, and I just just from a kind of again from a kind of corporate perspective, like how does it feel to be a you know renewables? company right now because you know a couple of years ago we had this bubble in green stocks which is kind of um kind of the air has gone out of it um but i just wondered what what's the kind of biggest challenge for the sector Are you would you be looking at would you be wor most worried about overzealous windfall taxes would you be worried about rising rates and the impact on the valuations of renewable projects or the supply chain bottlenecks we're talking about or the fact that eu and uk regulators may be a bit too distracted to to kind of give you the, t the attention that you need at this point in time what what's the most what's the biggest problem do you think so thank you for mentioning Tess. the one thing i would add to my hydrogen revolution book and narrative is exactly what Tess is doing so we are converting <clears throat> uh, green hydrogen to green methane so we're producing what we call eng it's electric natural gas it's a completely mm -hmm. renewable lng so this is being massively accelerated by the current energy crisis. The project that we were hoping to start in 2027, 2028 in Germany, we're building Europe's largest uh, regas terminal uh, for the importing of, of this green hydrogen. That's been accelerated to 2023. So we're starting next year with the floating um, right. regasifier. <clears throat> so the support, the political support and regulatory support, I think is there. Uh, you mentioned um, the supply chain issues. Those are very real. Uh, with the IRA in, in America, the Inflation Reduction Act, a lot of the suppliers are moving uh, their order books to the US. And what Europe should really do and the UK should do is really support the building of new factories for electrolyzers, for solar panels, for electric cables, uh, because that's what's going to uh, be the real bottleneck as as the new energy becomes a lot more widely available and cheaper the bottleneck is not in the availability of financing in the availability of the in the you know the demand and availability of land in the availability of sun and wind the bottleneck is just in the availability of the equipment to put on right. the deserts or, or in the high waters interesting so like um but so what is needed is for the the for the for the for the regulators and the public sector to, to it, it's not even like they need to kind of provide finance or kind of you know it, it's like the finance is there it's just they need to provide what like the kind of permit policy the, i call it policy nudges yeah uh, right. to create create the frameworks and and say okay you know backstops uh, create some guarantees some some backstop orders get right. the factories going the private sector will get there but i think the policymakers have really a chance to fast track it by 10, 15 years. If we look at what happened with solar, uh, UK, Germany, Spain, and Italy, these four countries single-handedly put about a billion, um, uh, sorry, a thousand billion euros of subsidies on our on our bills. You remember the, the very expensive solar and wind subsidies. Yeah. Uh, 
that resulted in China building about six big factories uh, to manufacture solar panels. And after 15 years, the cost of solar went from 1,000 to 10 euros per megawatt hour. So we, you know, these four countries saved the world, uh, reduced the price for everyone. Um, each of those factories will probably cost between half a billion and a billion. So with three to six billion of capex on a factory, you could have probably gotten to the same result. Right. So let's start with the end in mind. Let's start manufacturing this infrastructure. Let's turn this into an opportunity for new technologies, new jobs, new energy security. And let's use these technologies to go into places like Namibia, like Egypt, like Morocco, like Australia, like Texas, Mexico, right. where there's a lot of space, a lot of land, a lot of sun, and, and use these European technologies to, to bring the sun home and, and turn it into very low cost uh, molecules. Yeah, but I suppose just again picking up again what something you said a bit earlier. But um, is are you, are you concerned that the EU and UK or European regulatory like headspace is is? I mean, I, I, it's pretty obvious why they would be um, focused on the energy crisis at the moment. But do you think there's that's happening a bit too much, and there's not enough focus on those kind of things that you're talking about that need to happen to to grow the renewables in the way that everyone wants. Um, what 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 could be that they be doing differently, do you think? I think I think we need to um, get out of the old idea of, of of just pouring hundreds of billions of euros on these things. It's it's much more about realizing that there's a lot of liquidity, the private markets are functioning. Uh, if you just look at the cash on the balance sheet of the oil and gas companies, if you look at, at the cash available in the Middle East, there's no lack of of appetite for the right investments. Policymakers should really focus on the pain points, on the tipping points, on the triggers. And and those are around, you know, creating the contracts for difference, creating the uh, the, the 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 backstop undertaking yeah but it's not it's not subsidies that require hundreds of billions it should be smart subsidies where you give some nudges and you focus on really what makes a difference and i think it's around manufacturing it's around creating some hubs it's it's around focus on on the technologies that don't require to change the whole system um, right. that don't require a complete overhaul of everything that we've done and and i think low carbon gases clean gases and and e-gases are one of the paths forward you know, a very successful policy in Europe has been the biofuels directive. Europe and uh, the UK was still part of Europe, made it bland, mandatory uh, to blend into our cars um, growing percentages of e-diesel. You know, that was a policy decision doesn't didn't cost governments a penny. People didn't see it as a tax and it yeah. created a massive market for for biofuels. That right. type of enlightened policy is what's needed. Interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, it- I mean, you would have seen um, RWE did a recent deal with um, Con Edison in the US, and that was partly prompted by some of the um, some of the advantages and the subsidies that come from the um, Inflation Reduction Act that you mentioned. And I just wondered, I mean, you mentioned the supply chain suppliers maybe kind of re- redirecting uh, their attention to the US. Um, it's all part of the same thing. Um, I mean, how much of a uh, how big an effect do you think that will be, and how much of a problem is that for Europe, Europe and the UK? I mean, in terms of trying to develop their own uh, green industry and green sectors. 
So I think China is, as I mentioned, uh, leading the way because China is building their own supply chain and their own market, and they're really serious about it. And I think Europe and the U.S. either agree to build a joint supply chain, but if Europe and the U.S. start competing um, uh, through subsidies, that's just a very expensive and inefficient way to go about it. So um, right now you have European companies not investing in Europe, moving to the U.S. because the subsidies there are are greater. Then even within Europe, you have Germany uh, that has the highest war chest and firepower, uh, committing to putting a lot more capital on this than other European countries. So I really hope uh, Europe can at least get their uh, subsidies on a par. Uh, I think this is quite bipartisan in the sense that renewable subsidies and and carbon storage subsidies in the US were there even with the Republicans. So I don't think it's a question of unwinding some particular subsidies. I think when it comes to EVs, that's that's been more politicized in the US as an issue, electric vehicles. But I think for the kind of decarbonization of heavy industry, that's it's the consumers that are asking it. If you look at um, right. Amazon, you know, a lot of these Nike, a lot of US companies have made pledges to be net zero by 2040. So there's a real market there. And I think even the uh, you know, it's not just a democratic thing, but I do think uh, Europe needs to 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 accelerate the definition of its own subsidies and find ways to to collaborate with the U.S. Right. Okay. But like, is there a um, uh, how easy is that going to be to kind of set up a um, U.S. EU supply chain? I mean, that sounds like what you're what you're suggesting is that because China is doing all that itself, you know, we just need to have as big a block as possible. An alternative block also doing that. Um, I mean, do, do the people you speak to and uh, think that's a feasible thing to have a kind of joined up supply chain or joined up market for US and EU renewables? It's it's very challenging. Um, you you will see increasing calls for carbon border adjustments, and yeah. the elephant in the room is what happens around steel and very heavy industry, and what happens around trade of green steel and how will you create create the market for green steel you'll need yeah. to protect uh, the import of of non green steel so i think it's a bigger discussion than than simply manufacturing of solar panels and electrolyzers and subsidies i think that discussion hasn't started yet and that is likely to dominate the eu us dialogue in the coming uh, couple of years yeah but i mean i suppose just in the in the round what do all the various topics we've discussed do for uh, geopolitical power dynamics um, like this decade. We're talking about by 2030, you look at all this stuff in the round, um, do you see kind of, you know, Europe will be at the other side of the energy crisis being a good place because it's not, it's no longer dependent on Russian fossil fuels and it may have a hot head start on clean energy, who knows, Or, or will it just, you know, replace reliance on Russia with dependence on somebody else, either for the US LNG or Chinese raw materials or what? I mean, it's a quite sprawling question, but I'm just interested in your thoughts. So so the the US, if you just look in the next 10 years, uh, just projecting current trends, which whichever part of the political spectrum you're on, it's, it's hard to see the US um, having excess cash. There will be a, a fiscal tightening of some sort. Right. Um, 
Europe already has a head start and Europe is seen globally as the market for renewable energy, just because people understand it's it's more than a political uh, issue. It's it's a real commitment to actually getting to zero. And and I think uh, China, as I said, is sees it the same way, sees getting to zero as a real strategic advantage in, in what will inevitably be a decarbonized uh, world, at least for, for where the big markets are. Um, a lot of the uh, political or geopolitical weight is going to uh, shift, let's say, back to the Middle East. When I say right. back, you know, it's, uh, there's just so much liquidity available in the Middle East. And so you'll see Qatar playing a very big role. Uh, you'll see the UAE and Saudi playing a very big role on electricity and on hydrogen. And I think the big challenge is what will happen in Africa and who will provide that energy to Africa. And my bet is that a lot of Middle Eastern capital with European technology uh, will be very active in Africa, uh, both to provide clean energy to Europe, but to Africa itself, which if you just look at the demographics of what's happening in Nigeria, in Tanzania, in Congo, these, you know, 10 of the world's biggest uh, countries uh, this century will be in Africa. And, and just the energy challenge and the climate challenge there is very significant. So I'm quite optimistic for Europe. I think this war is accelerating uh, the, the path to a journey of building infrastructure that I call forever infrastructure. Once I've connected the sun of Morocco uh, with the UK uh, with an electric cable, for example, uh, that connection is permanent. It, it's not part of the energy transition. That's going to be there forever. Uh, and the marginal cost of the sun and the wind is zero. So that infrastructure will deliver reliable, clean, but also energy that gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And the faster we do this, this is the only chance for Europe to keep manufacturing alive, because the alternative is for people to stop heavy industry in Europe and just put the heavy industry investments where the sun is. Yeah. So our, our motto is PPWS, which stands for put to the panels where it's sunny. And we should put the panels where it's sunny and, and bring the energy to Europe to avoid the factories moving to where it's sunny. Right. I mean, just from the Middle Eastern point of view, you mentioned that, I mean, they currently sell uh, a lot of their fossil fuels to the Far East and Asia. Um, did you, did you, I mean, if we project out to um, you know, a decade from now, I mean, do you think they will be, uh, do you think they will be kind of playing a big role in clean energy? To Europe or to, to kind of helping that helping that um, dynamic uh, develop, uh, and do you think do you think increasingly uh, Europe is a big market for the Middle East, partly because of LNG, but also clean energy as well? Yeah, yeah, we're working with a number of players there, both state-owned um, enterprises and private sector, and they're all looking at Europe with a lot of interest. And there's a lot of competition in the Middle East to serve. Europe with clean energy. And if you look at the world's biggest renewable projects, the world's biggest hydrogen projects are all happening in the Middle East right now. Right. So that's a, that's, that's a potential growth market for them um, yeah. and a new source of uh, power for other people. Um, I mean, just picking up on one thing you said earlier about specifically about LNG, um, maybe could you just expand on that, um, the, the dynamic between Europe and the US at the moment? Um, the, the, um, because I think the the issue is that Europe really, Europe really wants LNG as much as possible to come from somewhere to replace what they're getting from uh, Russia, 
but they don't want to be paying too so, exalted rates. So what, what is the dynamic at the moment? So it's uh, somewhat frustrating because Europe, including the UK, will pay about 1,000 billion euros of extra energy costs this year uh, mm -hmm. compared to a normal year. And the governments are reacting by putting government money uh, to try to lower the impact of this on consumers, in the case of Germany, also on industry. And so the governments in Europe have already committed um, hundreds of billions to, to try to mitigate the impact of this. Uh, but they're doing so in a way that doesn't address the issue structurally. This is like pouring uh, mineral water on a wildfire. Um, with with a fraction of those investments or just commitments, you could build 30 million tons of U.S. liquefaction capacity. It could be up and running in three years, and yeah. and and even sooner if you took a, a, a warlike uh, manufacturing you know, development effort, fast tracking uh, the permits, etc. Um, and and that that would structurally uh, solve uh, Europe's uh, uh, LNG issues, lowering the price in a in a much more meaningful and sustainable way. And right. that would only require something like 50 billion uh, euros of capex. And this capex lasts for 50, you know 25 years. So if you look at the annual amount, it's a fraction of what we're spending. So there there are things that Europe could have done and could do, uh, and is not doing because of short termism. Um, which is somewhat frustrating. Also for for our American colleagues who have the land there, have the permits already in place, can't take FID, can't sanction their projects because no one in Europe is willing to underwrite these commitments. Right. But would you would you say that um, wouldn't wouldn't that have involved like Europe giving money or subsidizing um, LNG uh, terminals in the US in order to to make that? that make that happening happen or um or i mean what 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 could europe have done to uh, i mean as you say they're spending all that money all the moment to cushion the blow but your your point is that they could have just picked up that money and somehow improved the flow of lng is that that's that's your point isn't it well my point is that the market will be there for lng it's just companies um because they're facing their their own pressing short-term issues uh, and because of the regulatory and political uncertainty around fossil fuels, mm -hmm. companies aren't able to sign now new long-term contracts. Right. Without the new long-term contracts, the people aren't building the liquefaction infrastructure in the US. Europe could send a signal saying, we will underwrite the capacity, build the terminals, and, and the gas will flow. If, for whatever reason, the gas won't flow, you know, we'll still pay the capacity, which is just an insurance policy. It's a tiny fraction of... of the money that is being poured right now just to lower people's bills right so so it, a smart a smarter european political strategy would would do something like that rather than well, well, a I, trillion or whatever it's, it's it's very basic this is a crisis of molecules this is a crisis of supply and demand and you can reduce demand only to a certain point but then you have to it becomes really politically painful to to reduce demand further and you start losing jobs and you start having to curtail energy um no one's really focused on supply no one's focused on building the right infrastructure as fast as possible to rebalance supply and demand and that's it's that that's what needs to happen and what we're doing at tests allows people to consider lng infrastructure no longer a stranded asset but increasingly a forever asset uh, because because we can use exactly the same infrastructure we would build now to bring in shale fossil shale gas from America uh, tomorrow to bring in a clean 
hydrogen from Texas using exactly the same terminals, exactly the same ships. Okay, well, um, that has been a really, really interesting chat. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Marco. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out our latest views on breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.